At Woodside Bible Church, we gather weekly to pursue God by studying His Word together. How can Christians find the motivation necessary to overcome the challenges of our modern culture and continue the mission that God has called us to? In Revelation, All Things New, we'll discover a glorious description of the end of all things and the great kingdom to come. It's here we find motivation for our present challenges. Join us as we look to the end and find hope and strength for our mission in the present. Well, you can open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. That's where we'll be at this morning as we continue our series, All Things New. And so I want to say, like, everybody in this room likes a good story, right? We all like a good story, whether it's a book we're reading that we're like diving into and we love to read this book and, and the stories unfolding, or maybe it's a movie that you go to, or maybe it's um, a, a series that you're watching. I love watching different series as like they keep you hanging right after that one episode. It's like, oh, wait, what's going to happen? You, you want to come back for more. It's a good story. Or maybe it's the series ended and, and now you're waiting for the next season. And through that, like, when we look at stories, man, some people are weird. Some people like to know the end. Any of those out there? They want to know what's happening at the very end of the story before it actually gets read. And so some people, like, go and they'll read. Or you have these spoiler alerts, right, where people come and they're like, oh, yeah, I watched that movie. This is what happens. And you're like, what? Hold on. I want to see it. I want to experience. Don't spoil it for me, right? You get those spoiler alerts. I don't know about you, but I don't want to know the end. I want to see the movie or read the book and find it out. But one of the things we're walking through in Revelation is this is the spoiler alert. As we read the book of Revelation, it tells us the end. It tells us what happens. It tells us how it all unfolds and what happens. And that's what we've been diving into. And we understand that in that end, that God wins. We as believers, we as followers of Jesus, we win. We get the last word. God gets the last word. Many times you look at life and there's a lot of people who like to get the last word, right? I joked in the first service, me and my wife, sometimes when we're arguing, I'm like, I just got to say the last word so that I get it in, right? Even this last week has been crazy for my family. Like, where my two daughters, you know, they're 10 and 8, and they're playing travel soccer, and, and they're trying out for multiple different teams, you know, and they were on a team last year, but now, you know, you got to see if you can make this elite team and this elite team, and, you know, my daughter's walking me through all this, like, hey, I want to travel for this team and this team, and, and it's so crazy. I, I mean, as a parent, you get so stressed out because you're in that moment, like, you can't decide for your kid, Right? The coach is ultimately the one that has the last word. You can just hope that your kid plays enough to get on the elite team or whatever. But ultimately, the last word lies with the coach, whether he decides, hey, she's on my team. And then they come across that field and they give you that card and you're like, oh, thank you. No, that's when the money starts. But, <laughs> but that's what we're looking at today no matter where it is, God gets the last word, and we're going to see that today. So this morning, as we continue our series in the book of Revelations called All Things New, walking through the final days and moments when Christ will return, when he'll come back for his second coming, and the Apostle John, who writes this, gives us this story 
of how it's all going to wrap up, of how it's all going to end, how God is going to make all things new. A few weeks ago, we started out this series with the marriage supper of the Lamb, and then two weeks ago, we saw the victorious warrior king and how he had victory in the battle. And then last week, Jerry walked us through the triumphant entry where Satan is bound and put in prison. And today, we continue in chapter 20 as we'll see that God gets the final word on sin and evil, that he ultimately gets the final word. When we read the book of Revelation, it's a story. Quite honestly, it can be a pretty frightening story, right? Man, if, we've never, if you've never read the book of Revelation, just read it from front to back. It can be kind of a frightening story, but it can also be a story of hope, of encouragement, of excitement in it. As the Apostle John gives us the story or this vision, we see these characters within the story. Let's get some context here. First, um, there's Babylon, which is a symbol of the corrupt kingdoms of the world. And then next, there's the beast and the false prophet, which we saw, which are are the agents of Satan to persecute and basically corrupt the church. And then finally, we have Satan himself. And starting in chapter 17 up through our passage today, we see how God um, systematically dismantles this hierarchy of hell. So in chapter 17 through the first half of chapter 19, John describes the destruction of Babylon, right? When the city is thrown down like a millstone, thrown to the bottom of the sea. And then in the second half of chapter 19, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, how John describes the destruction of the beasts and the false prophet and how he, he takes them and, and God throws them into the lake of fire, right? And then today, we look at our passage, we see God's finished work as he defeats Satan, sin, and death, all the forces of evil, all the powers of darkness will be defeated and done with. God gets the final word, we win. So how does all this happen? Who and what are are the objects of God's final act of judgment? This morning, we're going to look at three different acts of God's judgment. And the the first one that John shows us, or he describes, is in verse 7 through 10, that Satan is defeated. So if you have your Bibles, Revelation 20, verse 7 through 10, let's read. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast And the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Man. If we remember from last week in the story that John's telling us, Satan has been bound. He's been captured. He's been put into prison for a thousand years. He was no longer able to roam the earth and deceive nations that he was imprisoned, right? For a thousand years. That's a really long time if you think about it. How many of you are going to live to be a thousand? Probably not. 
But that's a long time. Now the thousand years has come to an end. It's, it's completely over. And what does it say? That Satan is released. Now I want to point out something here. It's not like Satan had a, a, like a paper clip and he picked the lock and he got out. It's not like he broke out or he escaped from prison. What does it say? It says that he was released. Showing that God still had all power and authority. That it wasn't something that Satan did to get out of prison. That it was all the authority of God himself. That God allowed him to leave prison. That God released him. Showing that his authority matters. And what does he do when he's released? John tells us that he will immediately get out of prison. And what does he do? He goes right back to deceiving nations. Says that he goes to the four corners of the earth and he literally goes right back to deceiving nations. Now, what you would think is like when somebody goes to prison and they get out, and let's say they have a 10 year sentence and they go and they go to prison and they've done something wrong. When they get out, we would kind of hope that, man, they've changed and now they can come back into humanity and do the right thing, right? Satan's there for a thousand years, bound. Like he doesn't get it. He doesn't come out and say, okay, I'm going to do better this time. No, he immediately goes back to deceiving the nation. John tells us that he goes out and gathers them for battle. He references Gog and Magog here that were two names of God's enemies that are mentioned in the Old Testament in Ezekiel. In these verses, Gog and Magog seem to, be, um, seem to represent the collective nations who are gathered with Satan against God. So he gathers these nations, these armies, and John says that their numbers are like the sand of the sea. How many of you have been to the beach before? Everybody, hopefully. If you haven't, you're missing out. But how many of you actually tried to count the granulates of sand? Anybody? No. That would be crazy, right? For you to start counting the sand, like I'm going to count the entire beach, don't worry. We'll get there someday. But what John's doing for us is like, he's painting this picture for us that there was a huge army. This was a lot of people, a big, big army. It was huge. It says that they marched over the broad plain of the earth. Again, highlighting how big the army was, that there had to be a broad plain because there was so many of them coming, that it was huge. And it says they surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. This huge army comes up over the broad plains, surrounds the city, surrounds God's people. I can't imagine this. Back in high school, we used to play paintball a lot. Anybody play paintball? Come on. There has to be. Yeah. It was one of my favorite things to do. We turned my dad's entire 15-acre woods into a paintball course, right? And so we would have little armies that we, get, we got together, and, you know, these armies were maybe five to ten guys. Um, and so we would get together, and we'd play paintball, and, and it was a lot of fun, and the whole woods was painted, trust me, um, because we played so much. And, and I remember this one time where, where we had teams, and we'd go, and all of a sudden my entire team was wiped out, and I noticed that their team was still strong. 
And so I'm hiding behind this tree and these paintballs are just flying by me. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. I'm pinned down. I can't get out of this. And I should have just said, okay, there's a moment where you can actually say, okay, I surrender and they win, right? My pride got the best of me. I ain't surrendering. You're going to have to take me out. And that's what's just going to have to happen. And so I sat behind that tree as the enemy started coming around me and flanking me. And I had the welts for a week and a half afterwards to help understand my pain, right? As paintballs were just pegging me and like, da, 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 and I never surrendered. And there's like a mercy rule. They didn't follow it. Um, they just kept firing until they got really close. And so it was like, I couldn't get out of that situation. This is what he's talking about here. John's telling us this is a greater scale, way bigger scale. This huge army had surrounded them. They, they were outnumbered, outgunned. They had nowhere to go. Yet again, they don't have to fear. Because we know the end of the story, right? God wins. And then in verse 9, this is the part that I absolutely love. John says, But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Now, I'm a pyro, okay? I love fireworks. I love big fires. I can't imagine what this looks like. The, they're, they're sitting there and fire just comes out of the sky or what it's going to look like. Like it completely consumes them. They're gone. No more to be like, they're, they're gone. They're out. They're done. And again, Jesus wins the battle before it's even started. He has victory before it even starts. The battle doesn't even begin. And Jesus says, hold up. Wait a minute. Done. Gone. There's just flames and like ashes just flying around of people. Sorry. Um, can't imagine the smell. But it's got to be ridiculous to see like this is just like, boom, they're done. It's gone. Man, sometimes... We can feel a lot like God's people, can't we? There can be moments in our life, situations in our life, where the forces of evil are all around us. Maybe that feels like something that's happening now, where there's things that are just coming in on us and we're battling them. And we're pinned down. Maybe it's been temptation, or there's conviction in a certain area, or moments where it's hard to speak up because there's peer pressure in your life. But in the moment, in some of those moments you prevailed, where you've literally had the Holy Spirit fill you and say, that is not right, I'm not going to stand for it, I'm going to stand up and say, this is right and made the right decision. Probably unlike me a lot of times in life. I can remember back in uh, my high school days, I was in... Uh, I would go to the Votech Center, and I was in what, what's called FFA. Anybody know what that is? Future Farmers of America. Okay? It's an incredible thing. If you haven't done it, get your kids involved. We need more farmers. But it was Future Farmers of America, and we would go there in the evening, and it was like this class that we would take and stuff like that, and you had you know FFA competitions and all these things. And, and I remember when I first started going there, I was 16 years old. My dad had bought this brand-new 98 Dodge Ram, extended cab. It was beautiful, and he let me take it. Big mistake. 
Because we get out of this and, and the guys are like, hey, you know, we would leave there and we'd go up to like Lake Pleasant or um, up here on uh, Five Lakes Road and we would go to this one area and we'd circle the trucks up, you know, have a little fire, hang out. And they, they're like, hey, we play this game when we go there. Like, you know, we're, we're driving there, we play this game. And I'm like, oh, what's the game? And they're like, it's called bumper tag. And I said, bumper tag, what is that? Now, they all had old farm trucks. I was driving my dad's brand new Dodge. And they said, it's where you hit the bumper behind you as you're driving and you have to chase the person and you bump them and when you bump them, they know it and they have to slow down and then you go around them and then you got to outrun them, right? And so I'm like, oh my. Knowing that I should not partake in this, the Holy Spirit said no and I said yes. Well, I paid the price. The first guy that hit me literally dented in the back bumper of my truck. And I remember paying the price when I got home that night with my dad saying, yeah, dad, I don't know how it happened. This guy rear-ended me. But in a lot of ways, there's things that we walk through where we feel pinned down and like, there's peer pressure on us. There's, there's things that come into our lives where we have to make a decision and the Holy Spirit's moving in us. And know that as we fight this battle, there's hope. What does it say? We see Satan here in the next verse where God says, enough is enough. He says, that's it, you're done. There's no more. I'm not going to allow this anymore. In verse 10, it says that he casts him into the lake of fire and sulfur. Like, he's gone. Satan's out of the picture now. There's no more. He's not mentioned another time in the book of Revelation. Like, it's over for him. God defeats Satan in this moment. That we can find hope in that when, when we walk through things in life that, that are tough, when, when we are walking through struggles or, or maybe temptation or, or these things, and we're trying to fight the good fight, we're trying to fight the battles in our life, we can still continue to fight and not give up hope because we know the end, that he wins, that he defeats Satan. So what does this mean for us? We as believers can be encouraged that our spiritual enemy has and will be defeated. In Ephesians 6.12, it says this. The Apostle Paul says, We as believers in Christ do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. For many of us here this morning, we've been fighting the good fight and battling the schemes of the devil. Maybe for you, you've put on the full armor of God. You've taken up the sword. And you're battling these things in your life. And there are many times where we feel pinned down. We feel like all hope is lost. We, we feel maybe exhausted in them. You're walking through sickness or you're walking through something else in your life and you're just ready to give up. And there's hope in the fact that we know that God wins in the end. So the first thing we see is that Satan is defeated. The next thing we see is that sin will be judged. In verses 13, or sorry, 11 through 15, it says this, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. 
and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then we skip to 15. It says, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This next part could be one of those maybe scary moments. See, John tells us up until this point that Satan has been defeated and thrown into the lake of fire for eternity. And then he says he sees this great white throne and, and the one sitting on it is great. And there's a few things that I want to point out about this throne that, that we need to see today. Is The first one is the throne was great, it says. The throne itself signifies divine power. The second thing is the throne was white. It's signifying the, the purity the third is the throne's authority. What does it say? It says that the earth and the sky fled away, signifying the majesty, the glory, and the power of the throne. There's greatness in it. There's purity in it. There's authority in it. And then we see in verse 12 that all the dead, both great and small, were standing before the throne. Literally everyone. It doesn't, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what status you have. It doesn't matter if you're a good person or a bad person. It doesn't matter if you've got a lot of money or you don't or successful or not successful or you're good looking or ugly. It doesn't matter. It says that everyone will stand before the throne. Not, not just some people, all. Everyone. He says that the sea gave up the dead and Death and Hades also. Death and Hades are thought to be the realm of the dead. And, and there was legend that those who died at sea didn't actually go to Hades because the sea acted as its own sort of like dimension of death. But again, he's pointing out that no one is exempt from this. Not one of us. This was a huge crowd. I don't know about you, but I hate crowds. Like I think about crowds that give me anxiety. I get like claustrophobic in crowds. I hate traffic. I hate all of that. I mean, if you think about like the, the one that I put in perspective is Ford Field, right? In Ford Field, you can have 65,000 people there, right? On a good day when there's a basketball court in the middle, I guess they can fit like 80,000 people. And think about if you've ever been to a concert or a game there and think about how many people that actually is. It's like a sea, right? What John's telling us here is that anyone, this is so big, everyone who ever lived will be here, all of humanity. There's nobody left out. Everyone. And what is this enormous crowd there for before this throne? Well, John tells us that they're there for judgment. Again, verse 13 says, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. See, we've gone from the battlefield where God sent down fire and wiped out an entire army to now like a courtroom setting where there's someone or 
there's judgment coming. And then it says the books were opened. John says that there are two books which are open. The first book contains the actions of the individuals by which we are judged. But John mentions in verse 15 that there's a second book doesn't contain actions so much as it contains names. See, the second book is called the book of life or the Lamb's book of life. What we know is that those whose names are found in the book will not be cast into the lake of fire just as Satan was. But here's the sad reality. Everyone else, the names that aren't found, will face God's judgment, sadly, the torment of the lake of fire, the suffering. That's where it kind of gets scary, right? See, the names that are written in this book are those that have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, the ones that have accepted his free gift of salvation. When we look at Revelation 21 through 27 further on, where it says, the Lamb's book of life, which it calls it. The Lamb is Jesus who died in our place, who suffered on our behalf, who paid the price that we could not pay. He was the sacrificial Lamb, the perfect Lamb in our place. See, our names are written in the book of life because He suffered God's judgment on our behalf. Again, what does this do for us? What what does it do to us? Knowing this, how does it move us? How does it make us think through things? When we read this, it should should make us think about things, right? When we see what what the outcome could be and we, we read about these things, it should kind of move us in a direction. See, remember how I said this part could be scary only if you haven't trusted in Christ. If you aren't a believer, if you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, is it scary? See, on that day, nobody will escape it. You can't get a hall pass. You can't call the doctor and get a sick note. You can't escape it. Everyone will be there and stand before the throne. And as I said a couple weeks ago, when we talked about the battlefield, what side are you on? Where are you at in this whole picture? Your family, your friends, your loved ones, your acquaintances, your coworkers, where are they at? Do you care about it? Does it move you? See, when this day comes, there are two ways that our sin will be judged. The first will be before the great white throne. That we'll all be held accountable for our actions. The things that we've done, the things that we've said, the things that we've thought through. We'll all be held accountable. Matthew 12 says that for every careless word, we'll be held accountable on the day of judgment. That's the first option. For where and when our sin can be judged. The second The second option is that our sin can be judged on the cross of Christ. By what Jesus did on the cross for you and for me, he provided a way out. He he suffered and died in our place so that we can experience the fullness of his mercy and his grace. All we have to do is place our faith and trust in him and him alone. Accept the free gift of salvation. We can be free to live life eternal with Christ. And how do we do that? 
Man, if you haven't done that today, this is the way you do it, by acknowledging before God that you are a sinner. You have to understand that you're a sinner, that you are in need of forgiveness. Before we can actually be forgiven, as we talked weeks ago, you have to actually understand that I'm in need of forgiveness, that I'm a sinner, that you turn from your sins and then you trust Jesus by faith. And for some of you, maybe that's the first step this morning, is that you need to just come to a point where I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ for him as my Savior. We need to get rid of the pride. We need to get rid of the things, the temptations, the sins in our life that are holding us back from that. What is holding you back? Because eternity is at stake. God could come back today. And where will you be? So again, where are you with this? How does it move us into action? So he defeats Satan. He judges sin. And finally, in the last part, he destroys death. In the end, death itself is destroyed. In Revelation, we look back in verse 14. It says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is great news, right? Because death is not a normal, comfortable thing. It's something that hurts. It's something that that cuts deep. Maybe you've experienced the loss of loved ones or people in your life where it's cut deep. I know in this last season for me, losing my dad in August and then my aunt in August and then now my uncle just recently, like there's been a lot of death and a lot of things that are not natural and it hurts and there's deep pain in that. See, multiple times through the book of Revelation, death and Hades are mentioned as a pair, and the lake of fire is the source of God's eternal condemnation. This is the future for those, for these two. Their future is the same as Satan's, that they're going to be cast into the lake of fire, that God will defeat death just in the same way that he did the false prophet, the beast, and Satan. That he defeats death. God's not here to make peace. He's not coming to to negotiate with his enemies. He's not coming to say, hey, let's work something out. He's coming to defeat, to conquer, and to condemn. I don't know about you, but being that we live in Michigan, I'm pretty uh, familiar with defeat, being that we have the lions. And the thing with the Lions, right, we, we joke about it, but we've kind of accepted that we're going to be defeated. We're kind of comfortable with it. We kind of hope for more, right? We kind of like, oh, yeah, they'll win maybe this year, but then they let us down, and it's, you know, defeat. We get comfortable with it. It's like we expect it. It's something that we're okay with maybe now. It's one of those things that make peace with your rival sports team. It's not a big deal, but... It's a completely different problem when we make peace with death. And I think there are too many people today, they just make peace with death. Like, they're okay with it. It's going to happen. There's nothing I can do about it. There's nothing I can change. You know, one day I'm going to die and I'm just going to go on the ground and it's okay. And, you know, there's nothing after that. And they kind of make peace with it. See, 1 Corinthians 15 calls death our last enemy. 
Death is our last enemy. So for us to look at death and make peace with it, it's to say like, oh well, I'm okay with it. It's just going to happen. It's completely unbiblical for us. We know that God does not surrender to his enemies and death is one of his enemies. It's one of our enemies. It's not natural and and God's coming to literally wipe it out. Defeat it. And today, if you're a believer, you can rejoice in the fact that we know the end of the story. That God will defeat his enemies, our enemies. He wins. We can have hope and be encouraged in that. No matter what we're walking through, no matter what struggles come along, no matter what trials happen, no matter what we're doing, temptation, like we can defeat it because we know the end. We know what God does in the end. We know the end of the story. He wins. God gets the last word. Man, if you're not a believer, I want to compel you. I want to encourage you. If you haven't put your faith and trust in him and him alone, nothing else. I want to ask the question, why? Why not? What's holding you back? What is it in your life that you need to get rid of in order to come before the throne, come before God, and say, I'm in need of a Savior? See, knowing the end of the story, it should move us. It should make us do something, whether it's as a believer, we go out, And we share the good news of the gospel with others. That should move us. Because we don't want to see our friends and loved ones have to go through the suffering. It should move us, if we're not a believer, to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And my prayer this morning is that knowing the end of the story would move us in a way that we just go before God. As the band comes, would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that we can come together and worship you. Lord, I thank you for your word and the truth of it. I thank you for your promise that one day you will return. That God, you're victorious over your enemies. Father God, we can stand in that. We know that. Lord, I pray for the individual that's in here battling. Lord, whoever they might be, that they're battling with the decision of whether or not to trust you, to put their faith in you. Father, I pray that you would just move in their heart, that, God, they'd come before you this morning like a child. that they would surrender to you. Lord, I pray for us as believers that God, knowing the end, that it would move us out into our world, into our communities, into our families, into our neighborhoods, that God, it would move us in such a way that we would want to share the good news of the gospel, creating a sense of urgency in us that we would want to go and share the good news that would change the way we live because we don't know what tomorrow holds. 
God, may we be the church. We love you. We worship you now in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.